The Irish Times Inside Politics podcast is going to be holding another live event. This one is in central Dublin on Thursday, May the 16th at 8am. We are going to be in Medley in Dublin too. We only have a few tickets left, so if you want to join me in conversation with head of Ipsos polling in the US, Cliff Young, along with Pat Leahy and Jennifer Bray, looking at the polling in Ireland in the run-up to the European and local elections, just go to irishtimes.com events where you can get your tickets. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. It's Wednesday, November the 25th, and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. We're going to be joined a little later by our political editor, Pat Leahy, to discuss the political issues of the week. But first of all, we did want to focus on a story which Jennifer Bray has been covering over the last several days, and that is the apparent complete breakdown of the relationship between the government and the 221 Plus group, which represents women affected by the cervical check scandal over the terms of reference of that tribunal, which has been set up to adjudicate on their claims against the state. Um, Jennifer is here today, and so is Vicky Phelan of 221 Plus. Vicky, you're very welcome. Thank you very much, Hugh. Thanks for having me on today. If it's okay, I'm going to go to Jen first, uh, just to kind of get the background, Jen, if you can give us a sort of a a story so far, because this is a complex, you know, complex story. It's been going on for several years. Lots of people are aware of it. But can you just bring us up to date on where we are with it now and what the problems are that we're facing now? Yeah, so I think most of the most of our uh, listeners and readers will know that um, at the heart of the cervical check uh, screening controversy, there were there were two issues um, the allegations that the smear tests had been negligently read and a failure to disclose to women the results of the audits carried out on those smear tests. And I think most people will know what how that played out afterwards and how that led to uh, eventually the establishment of a tribunal. So the point, the whole point of the, the, the cervical check tribunal was to give women uh, a quicker and a less adversarial alternative to lengthy and confrontational court cases, which we've seen uh, some of play out already. And uh, if we remember last year, we had people like Leo Varadkar out saying that no woman should have to go through that court's process. So the uh, Iraq just moved to pass legislation to to bring this tribunal into being. And it has been, it's been established now for uh, basically a year and it hasn't yet heard a single, a single case. So what happened was we were coming into the start of this year and we were due to get the tribunal up and running and to have those cases heard in a more private manner, in a less adversarial manner. That was the aim. But then COVID happened and COVID-19 obviously disrupted everything in the way we live our lives in, in every way. And one of the things that happened was that 
The tribunal had premises, it had a membership, it had a staffing being put in place, but obviously it was all put on hold um, while the country grappled with with the spread of the virus in the, in the first part of the year. So, you know, we were coming towards the summer then and it was looking like the group, the 221 Plus group, and affected women will be able to sit down, talk to the minister about issues that they saw coming up um, in relation to how the tribunal would operate. But then there was an issue in relation to the staffing, the judiciary, uh, the members designate of the tribunal. Um, that was resolved. There were a number of appointments after a few members left. And now we have uh, Miss Justice Anne Power, who is serving Courts of Appeal judge, uh, who will be the chairwoman. So then once we got past that point, then uh, in September, uh, the members of the 22 plus one group met with Stephen Donnelly to go through some of the issues about how they saw the tribunal would operate. And there was a good few issues. Some of them are quite technical. Um, a lot of them are very, very complex. But, the, you know, and I, I wonder, will Vicky agree that some of them, it, it boiled down to the, the adversarial approach, the involvement of labs in the tribunal, what that would mean for how it actually operated with how women um, I suppose we're being even asked questions and um, concerns about the delays that had happened, which were completely outside uh, the control of the group. Would that mean that some women were not in a position to take part because of the statute limitations? And then obviously, then there was also um, issues in relation to could women come back to the tribunal um, if there was a recurrence of cancer and campaigners pointed to the Hep C tribunal where if a patient's uh, condition worsened, they could actually go back to the tribunal. So they put those concerns to Stephen Donnelly and the, the feeling afterwards was that uh, they believed those points would be addressed. And I think it came as a bit of a shock to some of the people, some of the members of the group and some of the affected women uh, when the group received a letter in late October after raising these concerns and after they weren't properly, I suppose, uh, addressed that they received this letter saying that the tribunal was going to be imminently established. And the day that they received this notification was actually the day that it went to cabinet. So a lot of us learned of it. In fact, some people weren't learned of it before the 221 plus group, if you were a political journalist. Um, and the group obviously li- rightly said that once again, they felt that they were learning about things that were happening uh, from the media and and not being told and not being warned. And it came as a shock to learn that the tribunal was being established uh, imminently and those issues hadn't been raised. And I think then what we saw was a process over a number of weeks as the group and the minister and the department attempted to work through some of those issues, but on the back of a relationship that had been, I suppose, absolutely frayed, to say a minimum, um, at that point. And if you want, I can talk you through what happened after that point. Well, actually, maybe, Vicky, you you can take over there for, uh, at that point. And maybe just that, that, that last point from Jen there, before we get into the details of things like the situation of women who have a, have a recurrence of cancer or indeed what the exact position of of the labs in this in, in, in this process would be. Was there a breach of faith there back in October? This The, the fact that, that Jennifer, for example, found out about the, the government's position before you did? Yeah, I mean, look, this has happened before. You know, the Scali report was leaked um, back in September 2018. You know, uh, we found out about it in the media. Uh, so this was another example of, uh, you know, us not being communicated to first. And bear in mind that, uh, you know, the whole reason that all of these women are in this situation is because uh, information about their health was not communicated to them. So communication has been a sore point with us from the very beginning, really, with the department and with the HSE. Um, So when we were told that the um, tribunal was going to be established, uh, again, we didn't find out about it first. Uh, As Jennifer rightly said, the political journalists uh, in Leinster House 
would have known about it before we did. Um, the letter was obviously written at the same time as the minister was going to cabinet. But in all fairness, our point is uh, to the minister was, you know, we should have been communicated to first, considering this is something that concerns our members and our, uh, you know, our women and families. Uh, so, you know, as Jennifer said, you know, tensions were already kind of frayed at that point. Um, and then it just got worse, to be honest, because um, the minister then went ahead. Uh, we had meetings all of that bank holiday weekend um, uh, and it was my birthday weekend and I literally spent that whole weekend in meetings uh, only to discover then on the Tuesday that the uh, order establishing the uh, tribunal could not be paused. Uh, you know, and this is something we wonder, was the minister aware of when we were having all these meetings all weekend that this was going to go ahead anyway on Tuesday uh, and they were trying to win us over? We don't really know. But either way, um, you know, we didn't find out until Tuesday evening that the tribunal order um, had already been established since midnight, you know, I mean, past midnight that on the Tuesday, which really, you know, was another kick in the teeth for us, really, you know, after, um, you know, bringing it to cabinet the previous Thursday. So, uh, you know, it was a difficult, fractious relationship, really, for, for the last number of weeks. But we persisted with it, Hugh, because at the end of the day, this tribunal was aimed at our members and we wanted to try and get the best out of it for them. And what's wrong with the um, terms in which the tribunal is, is proposed to be set up right now? So what's wrong, Hugh, is the legislation establishing the tribunal uh, was enacted in June 2019, which is over a year and a half ago. OK, if nothing had changed in the meantime, um, we wouldn't be having these arguments. We wouldn't be arguing with the minister. What has changed uh, is the ruling and the judgment in the Morrissey case in March 2020. So if the tribunal had been established before the Morrissey case came along in March 2020, when it was supposed to be established, you know, it took when you think about it, they're using COVID as, a, as, a, as an excuse. Um, yes, it has delayed things. But I mean, the tribunal should have been established well before COVID came along because the legislation was all already there since last June 2019. So um, the Morrissey uh, appeal came up in March 2020. And what happened in the Morrissey case was that the judge found that the HSC, uh, the state, um, are primarily liable for the cervical screening programme. So they have a non-delegable duty to the women um, that are using the cervical check programme. Uh, up to that point, women like me who are taking cases had to sue the HSC and however many labs, uh, you know, that were involved with uh, misread smears. Now, following the Morrissey case, um, it, you know, women only actually have to sue one defendant, which is the HSC or the state. Uh, and labs can be joined as third parties, uh, but um, it is less adversarial. And the tribunal was not recognising that. We, this, this is why we've had all of these meetings. Now, in fairness to the minister, that is one win we have gotten. Uh, so we did get a letter from the state claims agency where they have uh, confirmed that they won't contest if a woman is taking a case to the tribunal where they are only suing the HSC. Um, they will not contest it and they will just seek to join the lab as a third party. So that is one win. But we had to fight for that, Hugh. This is something that should have been recognised once the Morrissey case settled. Do you know what I'm saying? The other thing that happened uh, since then is that when you think about it, um, the statute of limitations as it currently stands is two years. That will be extended three years next year, but at the moment it still stands at two years. So when my case um, broke at the end of April 2018, um, the HSE were then scrambling to contact all of these women um, who were in a similar position to me to contact them, to let them know that harm had been done, that there had been a misread in their smears, uh, anyone that was involved in this audit. So all of those sit-down meetings are in some case conversations over telephone took place by the end of May 2018, more or less. So they were all of the women in the original 221 plus group. So the statute of limitations kicks in from the moment you find out uh, that harm has been done. So that would have kicked in from May 2018 
2018 for most of the 221 group. So by May 2020, a lot of the women, if they had not issued proceedings at that stage, would be statute barred. And through no fault of their own, Hugh, because some of the women wanted to hold out for this tribunal that the government had promised uh, because they they were promised that it was going to be less adversarial, it was going to be in private and they didn't want to take a court case. Um, So that is one of the big things that we're arguing, that, you know, the statute of limitations needs to be extended to allow for this small group of women um, to be able to take a case. Now, we were very responsible, obviously, uh, when we saw that this was going to happen and we could see this tribunal was not going to be established in time. We contacted all of our members back in March and April we notify them of the, you know, what the statute of limitations means, because for most people, they don't understand what it means unless you're in a case, in a situation where you're taking a court case. So we told them what this meant and what, what it would mean for them. And that if any of them had not issued proceedings, we were advising them to issue proceedings before May. So in all fairness, most of the 221 group have already issued proceedings. But there are a small number who were holding out for this tribunal. And that's what we're trying to get the government and the state to kind of uh, make good on, make good on this promise of a tribunal tribunal um, and suck it up, really. You know, if it's a case that the labs are going to uh, not um, play ball with these cases where women may be statute barred, the state should be paying for those costs. Because um, what a lot of people, I think, are, are kind of confused about, I find, with um, all of these cases uh, is, Hugh, like, for example, and I can talk about my case, you know, my settlement was 2.5 million. The state actually only paid 25,000 of all of that 2.5 million. The lab paid the rest of it. So, you know, we have an indemnity against all of these labs. So the labs are paying for all of the settlements. So all we're asking for um, in the case where labs may pull out, and they probably will because that's what they do. They play those dirty games, you know, um, in the case of women where they are statute barred, that the state should pay uh, because, you know, they're the ones who have delayed establishing this tribunal in the first place. There's an awful lot in there. Um the thing that immediately strikes me is it sounds as if the the state has, over the last couple of years and right up to this day, is is, is using the labs as a kind of a shield or an, or an excuse um, so that it doesn't have to do the right thing. But as you say, the Marcy case last year established very clearly that the state is the liable party for you and for uh, and for the other members of, of your group. So surely that defence kind of collapses at this point. You would think so, Hugh, you would think so. And I totally, um, I'm I'm delighted you made that point because it's one that I have seen quite clearly from the very beginning. You know, the state have really been hiding behind the skirts of the labs to use a very kind of a sexist term, I suppose. But they have really, you know, up to this point, that's what they've been doing. And and they continue to do so. There's actually a case that has happened since the Morrissey case. So the first case that has taken place since Morrissey where... um, you know, the judge, the, the Supreme Court justice has ruled that the, the state were liable, that the HSE tried, still tried to join the labs as co-defendants in the Carrick case. The judge literally kicked that out and said, absolutely not. It, you know, the Morrissey was clear. You cannot join the labs as co-defendants. You can join them as third parties, but they cannot be joined as co-defendants. You're the liable party here. So they tried it. They didn't win. So, you know, in the Carry case, the HSC was the sole defendant. And it was the first case since all of these cases have taken place since mine started it off where the state has actually been found liable and where they admitted liability. So they admitted liability in the Carry case and they made an apology. So, I mean, you know, that's the first time we've had that in the last two and a half years. But since then... Since the Carrie case settled, um, you know, the, the family have actually been fighting through their solicitor to get the settlement paid. So that that case settled in September and the, the, the Carrick solicitor was actually back in court last week um, fighting with the state um, to get some of the, get the settlement paid out. So they're all, so, you know, they're using these tactics consistently to 
get away, to absolve themselves from their responsibilities, really, to be quite honest. Um, and, you know, Patricia Carrick actually died uh, last night. So, you know, it's actually despicable what's been going on. And they knew this was going to happen. God, yeah. Um, Jen, there's a long and sorry history of the state, particularly in relation to medical cases, um, choosing to fight through the courts and to use all the powers at its disposal and to drag people, very often women, uh, be it said, through the painful and expensive uh, and difficult, emotionally difficult experience of going through an adversarial court process. And it seems to be baked into the way the state deals with these issues. And even despite the things that were said by Leo Varadkar and other people last year, that still seems to, to underlie some of the strategy here right now. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm, of course, really sorry to hear about uh, Patricia Carrick. I wasn't, I didn't know that. That's absolutely awful. Um, but yeah, no, Hugh, you're right. Like, the, it, it, you're right about how... The, like, if you go back, cast your mind back to the apology that was made uh, in the Dáil Estate Apology by Leo Varadkar, a lot of the people who were name-checked include yourself, Vicky, you know, and it's just really fascinating to see that a year later, the the very people who were, you know, mentioned and referenced and that this wouldn't happen again and that this would be addressed are the very people who are still raising issues and, in fact, who have walked away from from talks uh, with, with the government. I mean, we know that those talks between the 2-2-plus-1 group and the government collapsed last week. Um, and to people who were following it, it wouldn't come as that much of a surprise that it happened. Because if you follow the correspondence between, which I have done between the group and between the department, you can clearly see uh, the the language changes, I think, um, the 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 tone of the, met, the the letters becomes a lot more fraught. And you can see that the group are constantly reiterating these are the issues that we have and the department are slowly but surely uh, crystallising their position, I suppose. So in the beginning, maybe they're saying we can address this, we might be able to address that. Uh, When we get to the end of the process, it's just point blank them saying uh, on uh, advice of the Attorney General, we cannot uh, address the issues of recurrence and statute of limitations. And, you know, where does that leave the group at the end of the day? Does that mean at the point that you're making that a lot of members of the group will actually just decide to use the high court instead because they see it, that there's no clear advantage? If there's no clear advantage, if they don't see that and they use the court, then yes, we are back to a position whereby these cases are being being dealt with the court. And I think in the fullness of time, that probably will be viewed as a failure of politics. Um, what are the practical problems with going the high court route rather than the um the tribunal route Vicky I mean obviously it's a uh, there, there's a financial risk in theory at least and presumably there's an issue of of timing and duration and we're talking about people who might be under financial pressure or indeed might be sick yeah, so the, at the moment, um, Hugh, the only advantage that the tribunal has over High Court um, for are, is for people who aren't terminally ill. So there are a number of our members who are in remission um, from cervical cancer uh, who are waiting for a court date. And unfortunately, because there are a number of women who are terminally ill, um, you know, all of those cases are being heard first in the High Courts. So for, you know, women who are in remission or for, for widowers like Stephen Teep, who's lost his wife, you know, it will be probably be two or three years, to be honest. Uh, before their cases are heard in the High Court. So the tribunal does offer one advantage over the High Court in that if it gets established, um, it will probably get through cases quicker. Um, So for people who are, you know, obviously, as you said, you know, and there are many of them in that situation financially, you know, in dire straits um, and who want this 
to draw a line under this as well, you know, because hanging around and waiting for this to happen for another two or three years, you can't really get on with your life. You know, it is there is something about kind of drawing a line under it and moving on. Um, but, you know, you can't do that if you can't take a case. So the tribunal does offer that advantage over the High Court. But other than that, it is as adversarial. There is absolutely no difference, despite what the minister has said. Um you might have more comfy chairs and I can attest to that, you know, the high court is not a nice place to be when you're sick. You know, the chairs are extremely hard and and uncomfortable and the layout of the high court is, you know, very, you know, goes back to kind of Victorian times. You know, it's all, you know, nobody's looking at each other. It's very, very strange. Uh, and I, I found that very disconcerting, I have to say, when I was in court, because nobody had told me that I would only be looking kind of sideways at the judge and my solicitors were down kind of there and all I could see was the backs of their heads. And I remember saying that I was invited to the bar um, of Ireland asked me to do, give a talk and I spoke about that, that, you know, you, you know, this is very disconcerting for, for, for people who've never been in a courtroom before. So the layout of the tribunal obviously is far more, um, you know, less uh, adversarial, less like a courtroom, more like a nice kind of cushy meeting room. But, you know, at the end of the day, you know, it really doesn't matter when it comes down to it, uh, whether or not the room is nicer or not. You know, women want to have a less ad adversarial option and that is not provided with the tribunal. And that's what we've been arguing. In your experience now with this over over some years, how does one get change? I mean, obviously, this is primarily a legal process with a with an arm of the state, the Department of Health and the HSE, but it's also a political process and politicians don't like to look bad. And at times, presumably, there has been some movement because politicians were, were, were forced really to move. Where does that kind of the weight between the, the government and I suppose in particular the, the, the Minister for Health right now and the department like, do you, do you feel that you can persuade him to instruct his department to do what you want? No, we feel, no, certainly not with this minister. Um, things have changed since uh, the new government was formed and Minister Donnelly became the Minister for Health. I suppose, you know, we'd had such a long um, relationship, I suppose, over what, you know, nearly 18 months with Minister Harris when he was the health minister. And I have to say, I found Simon Harris to be far more uh, approachable than uh, Stephen Donnelly. Um, and look, at the same time, I suppose the cervical check issue was much higher on the agenda back then. We're now in the middle of COVID. You know, we've Brexit. You know, there's, there's other issues that have obviously taken over. And, and we understand that totally. Um, you know, we're not expecting that, uh, you know, we'll be on the phone every day with uh, Stephen Donnelly by any means. But um, I certainly feel that the tone has changed. Um, and, you know, they just want us to go away, uh, Hugh. That's that's it, really, I suppose. But, you know, we're not going to go away until we get, uh, you know, some sort of uh, kind of justice for our members. Um, but at the same time, you know, we, we have walked away from the talks at this point and, and, you know, we're not going to go back into talks unless there's something new offered on the table or they will come back and meet us um, some way halfway. But if they don't, you know, we're, we're, we're willing to walk away from it. And really, you know, like uh, Jennifer said, it will be a failure of politics if this tribunal goes ahead um, without listening to the views of the members involved. Jennifer, what do you make of that? Obviously, we're in the midst of one of the worst health crises in the in the in the history of the state. So, a minister for health is obviously going to be preoccupied with that, as Vicky, as Vicky says. But still, there is a kind of a sense that Stephen Donnelly is more in the pocket of the Department of Health, perhaps on on some issues than than Simon Harris was, and there doesn't really seem to be much sense that he's going to kind of knock them into shape on this issue, is there? No. One of the big concerns that I've heard over the last few weeks is um, and. It's not just specifically related to this, it is on a number of other issues, is how much the new minister perhaps is guided by his officials. You know, how much of what is being what is being written in letters is him, how much of it is written by his officials, you know. And obviously he, he went in in the summertime and he had to get in, in, in charge of a brief. 
at a time when effectively he had two roles. He had his normal job as Minister for Health and to a certain degree he was also the Minister for COVID and that was, that's the way I see it. There were two massive jobs that he had to take on, one of them which previously wasn't there for previous health ministers. So I would always give him that and say that that cannot have been easy to come in and get your feet under the table and try to grapple with the you know the worst pandemic in a, in a century. Having said that, you know, now the time to bed in has happened. Now we're heading towards the end of the year. We're nearly at the end of 2020. And I think those communications issues that we saw in the beginning should have been ironed out by now. And then the other issues that we're discussing here definitely should have been ironed out by now. Um, and, you know, it will be interesting to see, like Vicky says, the group have... Um, t- walked away from talks, obviously still want to see changes, obviously still want to see, you know, women done right by. This did come up a cabinet yesterday, um, the cervical check. I was told that there was an update given by the Attorney General. Um, I, I haven't been able to get any details about that whatsoever. And, you know, I uh, the sense that I get is that the department is proceeding with extreme caution um, now, nobody will tell me why. I th- I wondered were there changes coming yesterday. I wondered was was there going to be some kind of breakthrough, and obviously nothing. Um, and I know that there is a lot of political unease in other parties about how this has played out, particularly in the Green Party. I know that they have watched this very closely. I know that they have, uh, you know, reached out sometimes through back channels to check with various different people in government, I don't know with the group, but to, to see, are we okay on this? Do we need to step in? You know, is there trouble here? So I would not be surprised to see perhaps that if there isn't a further resolution or if there isn't a further attempt at a resolution to some of these issues or even a clarification, um, that there could be political trouble ahead. Do you anticipate, Vicky, that um, your members uh, will not participate in the tribunal if there, if there are, if the changes you seek don't happen? I yes, I, I would imagine there will be some people who will use the tribunal, uh, but very few. Hugh, I'll tell you why. Because um, because of the statute of limitations issue, anyone in the two two one group had already issued proceedings with the High Court. Now there is a, a, a possibility for members to transfer uh, their hearing from the High Court to the tribunal. Uh, but there are a few little sticking points on that, which we were also kind of arguing over and back with the minister about costs. So, you know, costs are already being incurred by solicitors, obviously, on both sides, on, you know, the, the plaintiffs or the women and then the labs. Um, if issues have already been um, or proceedings have already been issued. So are those costs going to be transferred to the tribunal or who's going to pay them? So that there are, there are lots of things like little small details that need to be ironed out, because like we said to the minister, you know, no solicitor is going to advise their client to transfer proceedings to the tribunal if the costs issue is going to be, you know, if the woman has to pay extra costs in order to take a case. So, like, there are all of these issues that really nobody has thought them through. So that's one issue. And then the other issue then is, um, you know, as I said, a lot of women will not take the uh, chance of, 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 of going for a tribunal that really is not any less adversarial than the High Court. And, you know, a lot of the solicitors who have taken cases to date um, and who have, you know, the large majority of them would rather have said, you know, to us that they would rather take their chances with Justice Cross because they know there's a precedent set. They know that, that you know, a pattern has been established. He's very fair. He's very sympathetic towards the women, you know, and they don't know uh, much about the uh, three ju- judges that have been put in place to chair the tribunal. So there's a lot of permutations, but I don't see that there will be a huge amount of cases that will go before the tribunal. A huge blot on the record of this government, Jen, if uh, this tribunal, which was set up with lots of resources and lots of 
complex messing around and indeed took far longer to set up than it should have, as, as Ricky said, if hardly anybody engages with it in the end. Absolutely. Of course, it will be. How could it how could it not be? You know, after everything, after state apologies, after many, many dull debates, but more than state apologies, more than dull debates, the actual real lived experience of 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 the women. You know, these are these are women, women's lives. These are women's families. You know, we're not talking about, you know, something that just went wrong politically, like a, a minister's controversy or, you know, one of the many things that we deal with on the show, like on a week to week basis, people's lives we're talking about. So, of course, there will be, I think, I think it will be a, a, a blot on the copybook is not even strong enough to say if it turns out that women don't engage with the tribunal, the tribunal doesn't hold very many hearings. And that actually, after everything, after all of the initial promises in the very first few days when this news broke after, uh, uh, Vicky, you took your case, um, you know, the promises that no other woman should have to go through this, no other woman should have to go through an adversarial process. If that turns out that despite all those political words and promises and and all the, the ministers we've seen uh, not to be the case, then, yeah, of course, of course, there will be um, ram- political ramifications in relation to that of the of the most serious kind, I would have thought. Finally, Vicky, can I ask you about about your your own personal story and, and your own health? I know you were on Clareburn Live and RTE the other day talking about this. How are you? And I gather you're you're seeking to pursue a course of treatment in the United States. Yeah, uh, look, my cancer never went away. I think it's, it's, uh, I thought it was funny actually that a lot of people thought that my cancer was gone, uh, somehow and that it just came back. You know, it was never gone. It's just been stable. I mean, I started off with a fairly large 10 centimeter tumor mass, um, and it shrank to maybe about five centimeters. Um, and I think, you know, at the moment it's in, it's kind of gone back up to around that now again. So what has happened is the drug that I've been on, the pembrolizumab, um, immunotherapy drug, um, which I had to fight for again, you know, I wasn't going to be given that drug willingly. I had to fight tooth and nail to get access to it because it wasn't and still isn't licensed for cervical cancer. Um, but, uh, you know, I'm, I, I honestly don't understand why nobody is studying me, to be quite honest, because I'm alive nearly three years later and, you know, and have been, you know, very good health. I've had one stint in hospital. And I mean, you look at me, do I look like I'm a cancer patient that's terminally ill? No, I don't. And I certainly don't feel it most of the time. So, you know, I'm waiting for the phone call for somebody to say, can we study you? You know, because I don't think I'm in an anomaly. You know, I, I think there's something in it that this drug obviously would work better for, for women if they were given the opportunity. Anyway, that's gone off the mark. Um, I had a scan in September and um, I have a new tumour in my lung, very small, like three millimetres, really, really tiny. But when you hear, you know, lung, uh, uh, you know, you kind of go, oh, shit, this is bad. Um, and three of my existing tumours have started to grow back. And again, we're talking about small growth, you know, millimetres, but it's time to start looking at something else. Uh, but I always knew this was going to happen, Hugh. I mean, the pembrolizumab, I knew from my research into it that it would only work for a certain amount of time and then things would start to grow back. It was never going to be curative. There's no cure for, for this cancer, unfortunately. Uh, so I've been looking since last year because I do the same research for my own <laughs> stuff as I do for everything else um, at backup options. So I had been looking at a trial in America in the National Institutes of Health um, because that's where they do all the kind of you know, the cream of the cancer research, really. Uh, so that's probably where I'll be heading if I am deemed eligible. I tried to apply for a clinical trial there before at the start, before I took my court case and I, I didn't um, qualify and I was devastated. So I'm trying not to build myself up too much in case I, they tell me I'm not eligible. Um, but I, I hope I am. This this trial seems to be less. Uh, there's less mm-hmm. eligibility requirements. Uh, so I think I should be OK, you know. 
And does that mean you'd have to spend, what, several months in the States? Yeah, yeah, I'd have to go for a minimum of six months at least. Uh, could be even 12 months, but I haven't even told my family that. I just said six months at the start. And that's what they, they've said to me, a minimum of six months because I have to have treatment every two weeks over there. And it would just be too much going over and back, you know, flying over and back because it's in Maryland, you know, it's a long flight. So um, they would prefer you to be in the country. Uh, and also if I got sick, you know, I mean, Jesus, imagine getting sick in the middle of a nine hour plane journey from uh, Ireland to America. So no, nobody wants yeah. that, you know. So look, I suppose I'm quite philosophical about it. I feel that this is a better option for me. Um because it's a very similar drug to what I'm on. And obviously, you know, I'm a, you know, I've looked it up. There are people like me who are called super responders to immunotherapy, um, you know, that we react very well and have very few side effects. So for me, it's a logical step to try another drug similar to this, to try and get, you know, the same kind of quality of life for maybe another 12 months or two years. And I'm always hoping at the back of my mind that, you know, in the next two or three years that some cure will come out, you know. And my, my husband's research in mRNA, you know, the same drug that they're using for COVID for the vaccine that apparently this, this looks like it's going to be kind of like immunotherapy. It's the next drug that they think might cure loads of different things, including cancer. So look, you never know, you know. Well, I'm a huge, huge admirer of yours and really a wish you well with, with, with all that treatment and thanks very much indeed for joining us. Thanks very much. Thanks for having me on. And Jennifer is still with us and we're joined by our political editor, Pat Leahy. Pat, how are you this week? Splendid, Hugh. Are you looking forward to being able to get back to the gym next week when level five restrictions are lifted? I prefer to exercise outdoors, Hugh. Often in the oh nude. <laughs> okay. Moving, moving swiftly along, Jen, um, as swiftly as we, as swiftly as we possibly can. In Greek can, fashion. As, yes, as I said, moving swiftly along as swiftly as we possibly can. Jen, where do we stand with all this? Where's the point of argument now between uh, Neffet on the one hand and government on the other? Is there going to be, is somebody going to win something at the end of this week or is that the wrong way to think about uh, what decisions we're going to be told about, I think, on Friday? Sorry, he was totally, totally distracted by Pat's pronouncement there. I was just wondering how his neighbours are. Is, every, is everybody okay? <laughs> yeah, no, we're um, in, in relation to COVID, we're, we're in a really important week. We're in a really pivotal week. Um, we've been here many, many times before. It sort of feels, to me, it sort of feels like a bit like budget day at the stage where it's kind of like what will be in, what will be out, you know, kites are being flown, what's going to open, what's going to close. But in all seriousness, it is an extremely serious um, affair for many businesses and, and and many people who've effectively been locked up, locked away for, for six weeks now. So the way where we're at at the moment is that we had a cabinet meeting yesterday and at the cabinet meeting, there was a short um, discussion on COVID. And what the what Michal Martin wanted, I suppose, was to get a feel for where the ministers were at. What, what do they want? How far do they want to go? And from talking to them, a lot of them privately, they want to go as far as is actually possible within the constraints of um, public health considerations. So um, we, he's got those kind of initial opinions. Uh, today, there will be uh, further meetings. There'll be at the, the National Public Health Emergency Teams meeting. There'll be a meeting between them and the government. And then later in the week, we'll see the final second cabinet meeting and a decision about how we exit level five. And what, what does that actually mean? Like, what are they going to announce? So, you know, they're going to set out What's going to open when? Um, how many people can you see? You know, where can you travel to? And when can you do all this? So it's looking at the stage like a staged or a staggered exit from level five. So next week, you're likely to see shops reopening. You're likely to see hairdressers, gyms, potentially hotels. Um, the question at the moment is where do restaurants stand in this? Obviously, I'm sure a lot of people after their six weeks may be booked, you know, a night out in a restaurant uh, for Christmas to catch up with friends. 
um, maybe they might not be able to do that. So, the, you know, that needs to still be set out. We still don't have clarity in relation to that. And then obviously, the, I think one of the biggest things for, for people uh, leaving business aside for just a moment will be where can you travel? Can you travel outside your county? When can you travel outside your county? And then Christmas, there's this huge emphasis on what kind of Christmas will we have? Will we be able to have the big dinners that we used to? How many people will be able to go into a house? Can I travel to blah, blah, blah? But I think the reality of the situation is most people know in their heart and soul that we're not going to have the big Christmases that we had before for obvious reasons, because COVID thrives in a crowd. So the job of the government will be to set out clearly um, uh, without any communications blunders, exactly what the plan is. Answer any of the, I suppose, there's always um, there's always issues that arise that seem to things that seem to contradict each other. Um, answer that, explain why some things are opening earlier, why some things are opening later and then explain what the plan is uh, for for after that period, you know, have they got structures in place? And so that that's what we'll see this week. Pat, the contours of this thing, as Jen says, seem to be fairly obvious at this point, a reopening of, of retail and various services, you know, hairdressers and all those kinds of things next week. And then perhaps a, then a second stage, perhaps 10 days or, or so before Christmas, running over the Christmas period, which will include probably perhaps quite detailed advice about people's social connections, how many people they should see, how many fam- how, how many households can mingle, those kind of things. The kind of stuff that we've seen introduced in the United Kingdom or announced in the United Kingdom over the last over the last 24 hours. Um, is there any kind of major point of difference, though? Is there a point of conflict or, or does that maybe centre around the entertainment, pubs and restaurants end of things? Yeah, I think um, genuinely some of the decisions about pubs and restaurants have not been made uh, yet. Um, I mean, we can see which way the wind is blowing in that, uh, as Jen says, we'll have a general retail opening up next week sometime after that, we think. Um, uh, what people are now calling gastropubs, uh, though that might be overstating the uh, case for some of them, I suspect. But the key thing is that the idea of a pub you know, that delivers pizzas from, um, you know, from a local restaurant and serves them to up to its drinkers won't qualify anymore. But pubs that serve food, that have their own kitchen, etc., um, and restaurants likely to open sometime after that. I think that in the, the, the length of the time lapse between next week's reopening and the restaurants reopening hasn't been decided yet and then later in the month the lifting of travel restrictions and the restrictions on home visits which I think will stay in place for at least the first half of December according to a couple of people that I was speaking to uh, last night and this morning again while these decisions haven't been nailed down that's the direction that we're looking at. I think that um the reopening and uh, the, the 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 period after that will be accompanied by fairly muscular public information messaging about the need to limit your uh, to limit your contacts and about the consequences if people don't limit their contacts and we end up and this is the great fear in government is by you know the middle of December Christmas week you're looking again at a spike in cases, a spike in infections, a sort of, you know, 1,000, 1,200 cases a week that led to the present lockdown. That's the great fear. So I think um, the perhaps the most instructive thing uh, said 
so far was said by Michal Martin in the Dáil yesterday, where he said that the government wanted to would go as far as possible, uh, but but no further. And I think he also said, uh, you know, that they would, uh, you know, that not everyone would be pleased uh, with the decisions that they make. I'm paraphrasing him, but it seemed to me, and it was widely interpreted as a signal to the the so-called wet pubs, the pubs that don't uh, serve food, that um, uh, that they are unlikely to open. To say, I don't think that decision is finally made yet, but all the mood music um, that I hear from government uh, leads me to that conclusion. Now, Jen, the Seamus Wolf controversy, or at least the fallout from it, continues to rumble on in the Oireachtas with various attempts to get Minister for Justice Helen McEntee to take questions in the Dáil, and that has turned into its own sort of political row, which has ended up in a peculiar place with the blowing up, essentially, of the Business Committee, which is a structure which has been in place since uh, since 2016. I saw our old colleague, former Irish Times parliamentary correspondent Michael O'Regan, rejoicing on Twitter yesterday that this was finally the end of new politics with the end of the Business Committee. I've, I've always enjoyed Michael's tweets about uh, new politics, to be honest. Um, he's, he's very enlightened in it, so I, anytime he weighs into the subject, I, I watch with with much interest. But yeah, so it's it's an interesting, the row basically, as we know, has been rumbling on. I think this is the third week, uh, feels like the seventh week. It's just been rumbling on and on. And the issue is just that the Minister for Justice, Helen McEntee, will not come in and do a full dull questions and answer session, not just a normal routine parliamentary questions where you get the questions in advance and you know generally what's going to be asked but you know the traditional Q&A you see ministers do when there's a controversy and obviously the issue that that the opposition want to get into is around the selection and appointment process um uh for the for that supreme court position and the 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 revelation that we had in the Irish Times that there were other judges who had applied and what the opposition want to get into is how did that process play out who else applied why weren't the other judges considered it seems quite basic really but the argument that the government have put forward is that they're trying to respect the separation of powers which we're just hearing them fall back on time and time again and what we saw then yesterday was as you say that the blowing up of the business committee and the opposition have temporarily uh, as far as I know most of the opposition have temporarily withdrawn from that committee and they say they'll do that on a week-to-week basis uh, in I suppose protest at the fact that they see um, Michal Martin as disrespecting the doll and disrespecting parliamentary process by uh, not allowing or not demanding, I suppose, that Helen McAtee comes in to the doll. Now, I saw some people saying that this could be the end of the business committee and it's, you know, awful for politics and et cetera, et cetera. And yeah, it's not great. It doesn't look good, but it's up to the business. It's up to the government to kind of set the business, you know, of of the day, I think. And the, the business committee was born out of uh, a minority government whereby you know, the government didn't have a majority and they needed to find a way to get things done that the opposition wouldn't object to. And that's where this came from. And to a certain degree, it's become a little bit useless anyway because everybody goes into the room, they have a fight about what's going to happen in the Dáil the next week or that week, and then they don't resolve it. And then they go into the Dáil and have that fight again. And that fight lasts an hour and a half and happens every single week. So I wouldn't totally agree that it's the end of democracy as we know it. Obviously, it's not a great look, but it's not the world's biggest deal, I don't think. Um, and, you know, it'll just be interesting to see if they do pull out of the business committee, which they have temporarily, if they continue that, if the business committee is abolished, if we keep having how many weeks in a row are we going to have this um, 
showdown in the doll between the opposition and the government whereby they demand that Helen McEntee comes in and answer questions and then they don't. And, you know, quite aside from the business committee, it does look bad for the government that they won't uh, accede to this request. And the longer that it goes on, the more it looks like, as someone said in the doll yesterday, that there might be something to hide. Now, I'm not saying there's something to hide. I'm just saying it sort of looks that way if you keep saying I'm not answering questions, I'm not answering questions, I'm not answering questions. So there's no end in sight is what I'm saying. And we'll just have to see where it goes. It's not a good look for Helen McEntee, is it, Pat? She's a rising star of the Fine Gael front bench, the Fine Gael, uh, portion of the government. Um, would it not have been better for her to kind of bite the bullet on this and just get it off the news agenda rather than it dragging on and on and on? Yes, I think so. Um, Helen, there was some surprise when Helen McEntee was made Minister for Justice, because the one thing you can be sure of when you're Minister for Justice is that at some stage a landmine will go off under your feet, frequently not one planted by you or even by the administration of which you're a member, but a landmine will go off anyway. The history of recent Ministers for Justice tells us that. And that's why there is, uh, it's normally an experienced minister who is put in to that department. So, uh, you know, if you look at, you know, the last minister, Charlie Flanagan, vastly experienced parliamentarian and politician, same with Francis Fitzgerald, his, uh, his, his predecessor. So there was some surprise that an inexperienced minister who hadn't been in cabinet before was put into this. That having been said, I think Helen McEntee is very capable. I watched her, uh, grow from uh, a minister for Europe who, you know, was attending summits and European meetings and, uh, you know, really in her uh, in her early summits had to be minded by her officials into somebody who was really competent, really on top of the brief, uh, well able to uh, well able to brief with the command of the issues. And I expect that she will do the same in justice. But there's a reason uh, why it is, uh, you know, why it's a difficult ministry, why it's normally a birth for an experienced minister. And so we've seen that a landmine has gone off underneath her. It's just happened to her very little before. I suppose she is fully au fait with the workings of the department and uh, and the dangers of it. Um, to, yeah, to, to, to agree with the point that you make, I think she should have gone in to answer questions. I think she will eventually have to answer questions in whatever shape or form. Um, it, it's clear that the normal oral parliamentary questions, which is a very tightly managed and structured process just for people that aren't familiar with it or for people who find, you know, the the, the current debate, uh, a, 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 you know, a bit impenetrable. What the government is proposing, what Helen McEntee is proposing and the government has clearly now decided to batten down the hatches and stick to is a normal routine of parliamentary questions which are submitted in advance, which she reads out written answers to, and then there is a follow-up from uh, from the questioners. So there's some degree of... Um, there's some degree of, of cut and thrust, but nothing like what the opposition are seeking, which is what we saw a couple of weeks ago when Leo Varadkar went into the chamber to answer questions, and which is, in fairness to the opposition, what normally happens when there is a controversy of this nature, that the minister goes in and takes 40 minutes or an hour or two hours or whatever it is of a free-flowing question and answer session, which is which opposition TDs believe with some justification is the way to get the information uh, that, the, that they are looking to. So I, I like like Jen, I don't believe that this is going uh, going to go away. I think that Helen McEntee will have to answer questions on it sooner or later. And uh, though the government has a majority 
it can uh, it can order. It is the government's responsibility to order the business in uh, in the house, and it has the votes to push through whatever it wants to. But there is, I think, in this instance, a political cost uh, to maintaining that stance, and that cost will continue to be taken from the government. We shall leave it there. Thanks to Pat and to Jen. Thanks also to Vicky Phelan for, for joining us earlier. Thanks to our producer, Jennifer Ryan, and our engineer, JJ Vernon. And remember, if you do want to get in touch with us, you can get us at politicspodcast at irishtimes.com. But until the next time, thanks very much indeed for listening.